0: Good evening, good morning, good afternoon. Welcome to yet another episode of Two Developers Down Under. My name is Mark Mandel. Uh, I am joined, as always, by the indeterminately informative Kai Koenig. How are you doing today, Kai? I'm doing awesome, Mark. How are you? I'm exhausted, tired, sleepy, but otherwise reasonably well.
1: Yeah, you were doing some game development thingy on the weekend, right?
0: I was. We hosted a Global Game Jam site here, which is a, I don't even know how many hours, 48 hours, Friday night to Sunday afternoon Game Jam hackathon thing. We had like, I think we started with about 100 people. I think we ended up with about 60 um, here in San Francisco. So yeah, I didn't sleep much, but it was good fun.
1: Ah, sweet. Yeah, a few friends of mine participated in Wellington actually and came up with a nice Unity game that they built.
0: Nice, nice. Yeah. Uh, I hacked some, some stuff in the meantime, but mostly I was taking care of people. Oh, yeah, okay. Fair enough. Alrighty, but before so we get into
1: that, we we are are in a, on. we're on a roll, obviously, right? Like, I mean, this is the second podcast in a row. It's like we're monthly. We're officially monthly again. Marcus thinking about something, but I have no idea what it is.
0: No, my network just went weird. That was funny. Anyway.
1: Okay. So we are months again. Happen.
0: Apparently so, at least for a short period. No, no, no. We will um,
1: we will keep up with that, and we will have a podcast in February.
0: Oh, okay. We're committing to it. I We're like totally it. Totally committed I can to with that. It, yeah, sounds good. And we um, to, but we th- need to do we need to do what happened today. We can't. Yes.
1: Yeah. We need to do that. Can I start? All right,
0: go on. You start. I think you've got way more than I do. I I don't know if anything happened today.
1: Yeah, no. there are a few things. So, for example, in two thousand three. Um, The Department of Homeland Security officially began operation in the U.S. That's kind of interesting. In 1984, Apple Computer placed the Macintosh on sale in the U.S. Um, Then we've got a few births. For example, E.T.A. Hoffman, which I don't know if you know him. He's um, a quite quite well um, German romanticist. Like from the 1800s, basically, author, composer, yeah, wrote a few really cool uh, stories and novels, and also the birthday of John Belushi, if he was, I um, mean, yeah, it was the birthday, but yeah, unfortunately, he died, you know, in '82, quite young gotcha. actually. And that's about Anything all else? I have. Okay.
0: Um. What do I have? Georgetown University was established in 1789. I don't know anything about Georgetown University other than it sounds familiar, so that's I'm picking it at the list. Is Georgetown uh, University
1: not in Washington or near Washington?
0: It's entirely possible that that is true.
1: I'm pretty sure it is actually.
0: <laughs> I'm really like I'm like like I think of it. The only other thing I can find that I quite like uh, Nixon announces a peace accord in Vietnam, so that's pretty good. Uh, and Poland was partitioned between Prussia and Russia.
1: Ooh, interesting. Ooh, yeah.
0: I thought it was good. 224th anniversary.
1: Yeah, but keep in mind that you're looking at a different day, right? You're looking at January 23rd.
0: I am. I live in the past. Yeah. You live in the future.
1: Yeah, as usual.
0: Yeah, of course. <laughs> All right, cool. Oh, my God, I'm so tired. So this is going to be really, really interesting. I'm, I'm just going to go home after this. Uh, <laughs> when, was it, when was the last? <laughs> so it's January. Uh, last time we talked, I think it was before Christmas yes. uh, in December. Uh, did you have a good break?
1: Yeah, I did. I didn't take a break as such, so I was working on the days between Christmas and New Year's, and I was working mm-hmm. in the first week of January as well, because I kind of like the quietness at my client. You, know, oh, yeah. you, have, you have a chance to do some things that you yep. just never get to when tons of people are around, so I managed mm-hmm. to do a bunch of... um Stuff in, in the realms of build server management and test server management and those kind of things that, you know, normally or quite often fall under the table. So that was good. And, um, yeah. So I might take a bit of a break in February for a few days, like two, three days or something like that. And I'm going to a conference the week after next as well. So yeah, there will be, you know, a few opportunities to do something else, but work, Mm. actual work. Hmm. interesting how about you did you go away or did you just hang out at at home
0: I was in San Francisco my in-laws came to town Um, so I managed to dislocate my shoulder so there was that that was fun (laughs) Um, so that was that was the thing but uh, no I spent I spent most of my time basically writing Unity code I was building games Oh, cool. Okay. uh, Yeah, I'm sure you were just seeing it on Twitter. So I've basically been building this multiplayer network game with paddles that hit soccer balls. Um, So it's a little silly soccer game that I am using as a demo so that I can play with server infrastructure, which is the stuff I do all the time.
1: (laughs) So you basically just built the game to show off the server infrastructure, really, right?
0: Yeah, but it was also good. Like, I really wanted to sit down and learn Unity um, and learn how their multiplayer networking stuff actually worked and, ah, yeah. and how, okay. how well it enough. worked and, like, what was well-documented and stuff. Um, some of it is, some of it isn't. Um, and uh, call it? And so that was, that was really good learning. and I really appreciate that. i gotta, I got to go back to it and clean up a bunch of stuff and make a bunch of stuff work better. Um, but, I mean, it's, it's working at its base level, which is good. People can join it over the network, and, you know, you can host it in the cloud, and you can put it anywhere. You can run yeah. a dedicated server in Unity, which is actually kind of tricky, and they don't document that very well. Um, but, yeah, now it works. And now I'm playing with, with Kubernetes and running gaming servers, which is hilariously fun.
1: So you basically spin up new instances and new containers to... Host yep. all the players if necessary. Yeah,
0: so session based games. So, like, you know, if you play Overwatch or anything like Deathmatch or play a sports game or anything like that, yeah, you can spin up a container inside Kubernetes and I just need to write small code for basically managing how you know where the IP address and in the, in the random port that it comes up on is. Because uh, Kubernetes will allocate which, which machine in the cluster it will go to uh, automatically. And then you can just have your game server pick a random port. And then you just have to register that and boom, you're ready to go. It's actually pretty straightforward. It's pretty awesome.
1: Okay. This
0: is basically all the stuff I'm doing at GDC. And now I've
1: proved that it works as of yesterday. <laughs> so I'm like, yay. <laughs> that is kind of useful. So how, how does it all play into the whole Firebase setup you guys have?
0: So Firebase is uh, kind of cool, too. There's a Unity plugin for Firebase. Uh, you can do different stuff with Firebase, um, which is kind of neat. Firebase has a thing called the Real-Time Database, uh, which yeah, is kind of Yeah, that's exactly what, I, what I, I
1: was referring to. Yeah,
0: yeah so it's kind of funny. When you talk real-time to game developers, when you say real-time, that normally means like FPS, like that's how fast real-time is. Like you're talking very low latency sort of, you know, uh, you want to... You so under a hundred milliseconds latency you know you want you want to be more like the 30 seconds 40, 40 milliseconds uh latency whereas uh when they say real time database for for the web right which is what firebase is you know it's more web mobile oriented um that's more your 100, 200 milliseconds sort of thing which is fine for a lot of stuff uh in the games industry if you want to do like Turn based stuff, you want to do card based stuff, uh, if you want to do general like matchmaking, party planning, mm-hmm. inventory management, anything like that, that works perfectly well. And there's plugins for Unity for that. And so um, it works really well. So is, to backtrack, the Firebase Real Time Database is basically, if you think of it like a NoSQL blob, right? So it's a NoSQL data store. Okay. Yep. Um, and it's just a big JSON blob, essentially. Uh, but the cool thing is, is, you can point to particular parts of that JSON blob and just be like, hey, that particular bit there tell me when that changes or something gets added to it or something gets removed from it. It can get okay. a little bit more complicated than that. But you don't have to worry about like, oh, I have a WebSocket connection and what's my database yeah, underneath okay. and that's push and pull. basically part of the you.
1: infrastructure that you're given. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yep. Yeah, and you don't have to worry about servers or any of that sort of fun stuff. So that's, that's a really useful tool for Unity developers in building games. But if you want to do like FPS or basically real-time, real so game real-time stuff, mm-hmm. then you're looking at basically they're using unity's networking stuff or building your own game protocol and that's a whole other fun conversation too
1: okay. i can
0: go on for ages cool. it's fun it's fun it's fun yeah i like see, it see
1: what i did on the weekend we had a long weekend in wellington actually so i mean nice, the, today did. is tuesday for me and um so yesterday was a public holiday and i basically rewired my house
0: of course you did what else would you be doing <laughs>
1: exactly so you know I, I had like um we only have adsl2 at home so basically i'm mm. constrained from a speed point of view to um something like uh roughly 10 not very 12, good to very 10, 12 bad. downstream and like one Mbit upstream something like that Ugh. Ugh. and um yeah it's adsl you know it's still better what a lot of people in australia have just saying
0: <laughs> that's fair I, I don't yeah no i don't disagree
1: yeah, I had it, I
0: had nice cable internet when I was in Australia. It wasn't too bad at all. Yeah.
1: But I mean, anyway, so that was that. That is always a constraint in my place, basically, which is fine. But the the router and switch and Wi-Fi setup that I had was really really bad. It was like one of those consumer Wi-Fi hotspots, and even the local network and the connectivity between machines in my network was like not fast or not not as close as fast as it should be. So it, mm. at some point I said like, "Ah, oh, that's enough now. I need to do something else." And I got um ubiquity hardware. Those ubiquity oh, I was going to say you should go <laughs> I
0: was going to say why don't you I get Google got... Wi-Fi? <laughs>
1: Uh, I don't think I can get Google Wi-Fi in New Zealand.
0: Oh actually. really? <laughs> maybe you can't. <laughs> I have an you know, it's mind, fantastic.
1: Yeah, keep in mind that you know a lot of things you guys do are only available in the U.S. Not to mention maybe only in the Bay Area. So you know, leave your Bay Area bubble and think about the real world where you but don't I like have all my that Bay Area bubble. <laughs> I know, you know, where you get everything <laughs> delivered and stuff. It's totally fine, but yeah, you know, the real world we don't have that necessarily. But anyway. So I got ubiquity hardware, um a ceiling mounted Wi-Fi hotspot, and a bunch of other things, and set up a proper patch panel in my house where I can actually, mm-hmm. you know, patch different rooms together and have like oh, wired nice. wired connections for the TV and the Apple TV and that kind of kind of hardware into the patch panel and then into the outgoing connectivity. And that's really nice now because what it means is when, um, New Zealand's UFB, which is called, which is ultra, ultra fast broadband, which essentially is a fiber rollout, fiber to the home is coming mm-hmm. into my suburb. Um, then I can literally, all I need to do is swap out the DSL modem with the fiber termination box and I'm ready to go for everything, basically. So that's a much that's cleaner cool. setup. And like we rewired lots of under the house area, you know, like pulled Ethernet cables. Along the the roof of the garage and, like, dug holes and drilled holes, which is the less fun part. part. But all the setup and the wiring of the actual hardware and the software, that is really cool and interesting.
0: Mm. So when you actually said you rewired your house, I assumed you meant electrically?
1: Uh, Oh, no, no. no.
0: And I got excited and then you were like, I just reinstalled new networking stuff and then I got sad. And then when I heard you said that you actually put like patch cables through your walls then I got excited again.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So from an an electricity point of view, I would probably know how to do part of that, but I can't legally do it in New Zealand because you have to be a registered electrician to do that kind of work, actually. Uh, Interesting. Um, Even though I could do at least, like I said, part of it, I, yeah, it would, pretty much invalid my insurance right away if I did that, which is a bit, yeah, not not You probably don't want to do that. Yeah. So um, for that, I need electricians basically. But yeah, the other stuff was fine. And I also got a bunch of um, Ubiquiti Wi-Fi cameras. Like they are powered by PoE, power over Ethernet. Yeah. So you can essentially plug them anywhere and just run an Ethernet cable. So my next project will be a cat flap camera and a chicken coop camera.:
0: Of course, because why not?
1: Yeah, and you can, it's, it's a really cool setup, basically. The cameras hook itself hook themselves into the access point pretty much right away and you know manage all the firmware stuff and manage the synchronization. And you can set up motion detector hotspots on the camera, so you can basically point it to somewhere and then say, this rectangle gonna be where I want to track for motion so if I point that to the cat flap and then select the actual flappy area theoretically I would hope I can get like push notifications really easily whenever my cat comes in and out and as we all know my cat has a Twitter account so you yes. can you can see where this is going with you know if, if oh, else and stuff like that
0: you'd be like so oh no see this is what you need to do right no, I gotta I gotta I got I so yeah you've got the cat flap it opens that takes a picture of your cat But then you put it through something like Vision API to make sure there's actually a cat in the photo. And if you do get a cat in the photo, then you can post it on Twitter.
1: So there's something else, actually, because our cat is one of those cats that regularly brings in alive or dead animals. We had had him actually bring in a bunny. Oh, my
0: God. Really?
1: It it was dead, luckily. It wasn't alive. Not for the
0: bunny, it wasn't.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was probably... It was probably a road kill or a third-party kill. I don't think he killed the bunny, actually. But we have, you know, a live birds or a live mice and stuff like that. And that's obviously not great. So the cat flap that we have has a microchip reader built in. So it can work in the way that only he can get through. What I thought at some point was build something that runs on a little Raspberry Pi, for example that actually mm-hmm. does vision API or, you know, shape recognition to try to figure out if it's only him or if it's him dragging in another dead animal or a an live animal. Mm-hmm. Because theoretically, when he walks through the cat flap, you would see something sticking out to the side, I would assume, which is like bird Maybe. wings or whatever, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff.
0: So that would be but a But then cool- then you're just like a million miles away going, all right, now there's a dead carcass in my house when I get home and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs>
1: No, what you could do is actually just not open the cat flap hook if he's bringing something in, right? Just lock him out.
0: Oh, so sad.
1: But that you know that would be a cool thing, but that's obviously much harder than yeah. just getting a Twitter notification. Cat went in, cat went out. That's you know, true.
0: That... We had we had dog doors back in Melbourne that we never ever using that we had a RFID chip in the mm-hmm. collar. And they were great. She could walk up to it, she'd touch her nose to it and they would open up automatically but she was too terrified to go through them so she never did.
1: It was probably exactly the same company because they do, the company we have, they do um, dock door or dock size doors as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. They were really, really cool and like, yeah, it was just like awkward to get through and stuff so she never actually ended up using it. It was kind of funny. We spent all this money on this this really cool RFID tech chip stuff that that was just like, nope. She's like, no, I'm not going through that. There's no way. Pretty yeah, so good. that was
1: my project over yesterday, basically.
0: Nice. Now, you up. said you're, uh, you're heading up to a conference soon?
1: Yes. I'm going to Japan to Droid Kaigi.
0: Very cool. What are you doing there?
1: I'm just going there because I want to go to a, to an Android conference and I want to go to Japan. You know, what's wrong with that?
0: <laughs> see, no, I can't see anything wrong with that. That's well, seems totally reasonable.
1: You know, normally, you know, I would have put in a topic um, to present, but... I just found out about that conference literally last week. And the conference is in March. So the deadline for calls for paper and everything was like last year, November. So it was way too late to put a topic Mm. in. Um, And then I thought like, ah, it's Japan and it's Android. Yeah, I just want to go. And I booked (laughs) it. It seems pretty reasonable. Yep. So that would be cool. That's going to be my first conference in Japan. I've never been to one. And interestingly enough... It's about. It's actually quite decent sized. I think they have like five or six parallel tracks. And obviously the vast majority of those sessions is in Japanese. So yeah, I was going to say. But they have English sessions. So I got in touch with the organizers before I booked the whole trip and said like, you know, how are those English sessions arranged? Is it in a way that I could stay in an English track the whole day? Or might it be that there are like five English sessions in parallel and then I've got nothing to do for like... The rest of the day, potentially. And they said, like, the English sessions are all in one track. So, as an English speaker, you have limited choice, or as an English-only speaker, at least. But at least I can get English content the whole day, or the whole two days.
0: That sounds good. That'll be fun.
1: Yeah, I think so. And, I mean, I've been to Japan quite a few times. Mm. um, But it's the first time in a work or conference or, you know, like, tech-related context really all the other trips were like you know holiday and vacationing or manga purchasing trips and stuff like that
0: the important stuff
1: yeah exactly computer games coincidentally i'm going there in the week right after the switch launches
0: huh uh, you can pick yourself up one
1: yeah i'm thinking about that but you know there are a few unknowns though i mean one is availability even though I guess in Japan it could be reasonably easy to get one because they probably have hmm. a gazillion of stock.
0: Nintendo's never really had a huge problem with availability.
1: They had with the original Wii. Did the, they? That was terrible. You know, it took me about six months to get one.
0: I don't even remember. That's really funny. There you go.
1: That was really hard. The Wii U was easy, and most of their, most of their um, portable consoles so far, the DS or the Game Boy or the 3DS, have been easy as well. But I think the Wii was kind of difficult back then. But anyway, the question is: If I buy one in Japan, can I easily switch it to English? Most likely, the answer will be yes.
0: Probably. The, or do you get an international warranty?
1: Uh, I don't care about that. Warranties no. are overrated. Whatever. I mean, that's like my, mm. that's my my least concern, to be honest. Um, Fair enough. I know it will be region free or region lock free because they said that. But then the other question is, like, with the eShop, is maybe the console you buy in Japan kind of limited to the Japanese eShop? I mean, those are a bunch of unknowns I need to work mm. out before I make the decision to buy it there. But if, I, if that all pans out and if I would, could find one, I would probably be interested in bringing one back, yes.
0: All uh, right. Us, let us know how it goes. Maybe I'll pick one up, too, if it's, if it's particularly fascinating.
1: Ooh, then we can play ARMS and all those cool games. Have you seen the Nintendo Direct about the Switch?
0: No, oh, I've seen, you mean like the people who all gather together and stop playing basketball outside so they can play Switch together?
1: Yeah, no, that was just that first promo video. <laughs> the, the, yeah. the, other, the other week they've done like a proper presentation of the Switch and demoed some games and demoed how the, oh, yeah. how the remote controllers work. And it's really cool. They have a bunch of really cool games that make good, or that seem to make good use of those little mini controllers you clip to the side where you can actually, there's a fighting game where you play a character that has like super long metal arms and you use the controllers to actually really physically fight, which, you know, looked like when they demoed it, really, really cool.
0: That sounds cool. I was uh, I was playing with a fun VR experience at Global Game Jam. It was really simple but really kind of clever and just kind of cute. It was Oculus VR. And um, and you have control... How do I even explain this? You had control of this little floating green cube and around you were the, all these other different shaped cubes. Mm-hmm. Them in the landscape, and if you if you held the controller and you kind of like you f- you kind of threw your arm like you're flinging it right, mm-hmm. then the, then the green cube would go forwards and you could pull it back and you kind of manipulate it by space, sort of like it was almost like you're just doing this magic thing. But mm-hmm. as soon as a ball so as soon as the green cube would touch another cube and it had enough mass in the, the amount of cubes it had it would attach itself kind of to the cube just kind of loosely mm. so then you could kind of manipulate these giant structures once you got them all together of like all these different interacting physics objects and so you'd kind of throw them in the air and you'd feel like, a, feel like a, a wizard sort of like with just watching all this stuff float into the sky and you'd be like no now come down and it would come down to you it was just loads and loads of fun and very really simple but so much fun to play with
1: it's really interesting like sometimes those extremely simple games turn out to be the best Right.
0: yeah no it was it was super simple concept and it was, a, it was an interesting one sometimes i see vr for vr's sake and sometimes i'm like nope that's actually kind of cool
1: what is actually the um current availability of vr games or vr apps for the daydream
0: you ask a very good question i do not know okay. um, i do I... have two daydreams and two pixels to play with but i haven't got around
1: to it yet because i ordered a daydream um, and that's waiting for yeah. me in Aussie because obviously in New Zealand you can't order it. So I had it, I bought it in Aussie and got it shipped to my client. And I'm going there mm-hmm. next week and pick it up and you know, actually do some work there. But also pick up the Daydream. <laughs> and <laughs> I remember that Google said something that by the end of last year they wanted to have about fifty apps or games in the Play Store. But I really yeah, sure. did. I have no idea you know, how close you guys got to that. I just ordered it because I thought like, oh, you know, a VR kit for 119 Aussie dollars. Do you have a Pixel? Yeah, I've got a Pixel, yeah.
0: Oh, there you go. I told you I have a Pixel. Yeah, so I, I, I couldn't remember. The funny thing is, is I still have the Nexus 6P for my regular phone, but I have two Pixels because of, I wanted to do some VR stuff. (laughs) <laughs> so at the moment they're actually like kind of sitting oh, what, in, in my a drawer <laughs> no, they're sitting in a box i haven't i just haven't had time to actually like play with them um yeah i want to do some multiplayer vr stuff i think that's kind of interesting and exciting i want to see how that that works um we were at the at gdc at the, GDC, no, at the global game jam we had um and I blanked on his name. I should actually look this up. Uh, one of the guys from Daydream come, and his job at Google is actually to prototype VR games. So he's talking about like fifty best practices for VR that he'd come he'd come through with in. Um, Building VR games and prototypes for VR and stuff. Um, and the okay. interesting thing, actually, on the multiplayer side, one of the things that I thought was interesting is that latency for voice and sound is way more important than latency for movement between players. Latency for movement is still very important, but getting sort of disjointed sounds and disjointed voices, like if you, once you actually put the voice in, really kind of removes the immersion of it. You kind of feel the lag a lot more. Uh, so it's something that's, that's a lot more sort of... Um, sensitive when you're in a vr environment it's really interesting stuff i i'm still not sold on whether it's going to be viable business but the vr stuff is kind of cool
1: okay interesting can you still hear me
0: i can totally still hear you
1: okay because my microphone actually doesn't show any activity anymore weird yeah i can hear you okay that's fine then yeah i think that that you know that um that point you made with the latency i wonder why that is is it because we kind of get so immersed into the, into the experience that you look out for sound more, that you notice the latency in sound more?
0: I feel like, well, I feel like, you know, so if, you're, if I'm playing like a first-person shooter or something like that and you and I are chatting over like a voice chat, I don't really have any cues like or any body language or anything like that to tell me that you are talking or expressing a certain thing. But if we're in a VR environment, maybe you see my two hands, you probably see a head, mm-hmm. right? Those are, those are sort of the standard things right now. If I start expressing with my hands, tilting my head from one side to another in a way that you are very used to from a physical point of view, having lower latency on the void, those two things don't start, start to just mismatch. And I think they probably don't line up and you start, it just becomes very, you know, uh, you're very cognizant of the fact that they don't line up. It becomes uncanny valley very, very quickly.
1: Oh, yeah, fair enough. Okay, I can I can see that, yeah hmm interesting yeah i let you know how i what i think of the daydream i mean i used it once for about five minutes or 10 minutes mm-hmm. at a meetup but i've never spent any you know decent amount of time with it so far
0: yeah i have i have some ideas for some multiplayer games that unfortunately i think you're going to make people motion sick <laughs> 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 we're we're talking about doing some some carnival theme demo type things and uh and so we we're like oh we should do multiplayer VR bumper cars and i was like yeah that sounds like fine and then i'm like the change in velocity is going to make people mm. motion sick yeah um so we're going to i'm going to i might end up just doing it to see what happens um but yeah it was kind of funny yeah it was a funny thing that um oh, man i really need to look up this guy's name um what <sighs> Rob. There we go. Rob. Rob Jack now. uh, Super smart guy who basically said, um, yeah, he's the first thing that everyone wants to do when they do VR is build a roller coaster. And the last thing you should do when you're building VR is build a roller coaster. (laughs) So (laughs) apparently, there's a VR game called Chuck that uh, Rob was playing, and he said he felt sick. All day long, and it is, it's literally it's just a roller coaster. That's all it is. And he's like, I felt so ill all day that I, I'm like never touching that again.
1: Does it depend on the person how receptive you are for that motion sickness? Is it like normal motion sickness, or do you think it's a special form of motion sickness?
0: Well, I think it's you know it depends how receptive you are to motion sickness in general. Um, I don't think it's a special type of motion sickness. Motion sickness is motion sickness. It's just the the yeah, dissonance yeah. between your brain telling you you're moving and the water in your ears telling yeah. you you're not. Um, but yeah, I believe certain people are more. I think it's now. I have to go look this up, but I'm almost positive that women actually pre, uh, experience it more than men do on VR, at the very least. Okay. Um, there is definitely a gender bias there. Um, I have to go. I have, I have to go look for that actual stat. There's definitely one gender that experiences more than the other. I can't remember, and I feel. I feel like it was women, but I'm not entirely sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. from anecdotal, you know, experience with my wife, she sometimes gets really badly motion sickness in 3d movies you know those movies when you wear oh, yeah. the glasses yeah, yeah, yeah. In. um and that makes me think that most likely you won't enjoy the daydream experience that much but we'll see how it goes
0: well it depends right so there's there's so much stuff you can do in vr that mitigates that right so you can kind of go point to point so like sort of teleporting mm-hmm. right that's generally fine um there's Games you can play with, like how your camera works, and sort of the easing. So if it's if it's a slower slower moving game, or even if your thing moves quickly, right, whatever that object is, your camera can sort of view it from another angle and then slowly adjust. In which case, you don't necessarily okay. get that same that same jolt. Um, like the the one I think I told you about. I don't remember if I told you about this, but the, uh, when I went to the Unity conference last year, did I tell you about this? The the Mech Warrior game.
1: Mm, I don't know there was it.
0: There was this was like actually a really cool VR experience. So, um, VR experience where you're playing inside a mech warrior suit, right? So, you're a pilot mm-hmm. of a mech, um, and It it worked so well in so many levels. The one thing I really loved about it actually is that you're inside a mech. So if you want to see like your health levels or your ammo levels, you actually have to look down at the dashboard Mm -hmm. that's in Mm -hmm. front of you inside your mech. You don't have a HUD or anything Mm -hmm. like that, which is actually kind of ironic considering like fighter pilots have HUDs inside their helmets. (laughs) And if they couldn't do that, like that doesn't make sense, but that's fine. But it was, I I actually found that really immersive, but the speed in which a mech moves, like even if you're jumping and stuff was slow enough that... Like motion sickness was never an issue. So it really fit that environment really nicely. That's really cool.
1: Yeah, maybe it's just about finding the right type of games to do, you know, VR with at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. Absolutely. 100%. But it's so new that there's so much space to explore. So, Mm. as well, it's something that I'm not actively pursuing. It's still really interesting.
1: I'm wondering, you know, which direction the whole VR movement is going to go. I mean, there's obviously games, and then there is like, you know, actual industry or you know educational yep. applications so i, like, think, I know for for surgery training and for you know
0: yep. all sorts of things i think i think that's where the money is actually to be mm. quite frank if if you're actually looking to build a vr business like simulations for factories um simulations yeah so like training medical uh military like anything along those sort of lines heavy machinery mm-hmm. that sort of stuff like i think yeah i think that's where the money is um because those sort of companies will pay money for training along those sort of lines, where they could do dangerous things in the virtual world and not get hurt. Yeah,
1: and I mean, um, pretty much we have that to some extent—not in VR, but you know, some extent mm. already with like you know simulation of jetliners, you know, like when you do yep. pilot training, A380 simulator stuff like that. You know, you don't necessarily want to practice like a full engine, a four-engine failure um, in a real plane that costs like 100 million something.
0: But that's true. But those simulators, like I think those are fairly expensive too. Like if you're doing it in a oh, yeah. real thing, like to actually just sit inside a VR helmet and be able to manipulate at least somewhat realistically an actual airplane. Um,
1: yeah, that is certainly true. But then keep in mind far
0: less cost effective. Yeah, or far but, more cost effective.
1: But those, you know, those full simulators—they have hydraulics that actually simulate the movement properly, so you actually feel yeah. as if you're sitting in an aircraft. And that is what I think a good chunk of what drives the cost of those. Surely, you know, you, c- you could sit in... Bo- well, you've got all the buttons and everything else too. Yeah, but that's, you know, like... It's all the physical stuff. That's some physical stuff. But, you know, when you look at one of those simulators from the outside, it's a massive thing with all those moving parts and the legs and yep. all the stuff that it can simulate. So I think that's probably more expensive than, like, a panel that simulates your cockpit. I sh- Sure, that Adds to the cost, and you can probably make it cheaper if you put someone who's wearing a good VR helmet into one of those hydraulic things. That's true. But yeah, but yeah.
0: the neat thing about a VR helmet is I could be flying a Boeing seven four seven, or I could be flying a you know an A three eighty, or I could be flying an F twenty four. No, you couldn't or...
1: because you still need to have the hydraulics matching the type of plane you fly.
0: Nah, nah. Huh. All right, so you yeah. But like I like you give that up, but like you're giving flexibility and portability and all sorts of other stuff that
1: Yeah, I agree. I'm not saying like you know yeah. one is right and the other is wrong. I'm just you know trying to outline Pros and cons. that it's not as easy as like, hey, use a VR helmet and you get the same experience because you want
0: in this So case. actually that's interesting though. Like as a regular person, how much access would you have to one of those flat simulator type things?
1: To the good ones? Pretty much like, I none, unless you okay, so that, unless you're willing to spend there. like lots of money to an airline oh, training God. company to book time in a simulator. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, so that you would know, be they, interesting. They,
0: so, okay, hey, actually, that's interesting. So, say you're you're you have your pilot's license, right? Yep. Would you do training inside of VR? Like, would you pay for VR training to help you prepare for your pilot's license? Would that be something you'd be you'd be interested in paying for?
1: Um, probably not for the private license, because to get your private license is, it's a really reasonably easy process, you know, compared to becoming an airline transport pilot. And for example, flying a typical single air, single engine aircraft in New Zealand, mm. let's say I would pay something like $200 for an hour, including fuel and everything Let mm. give and take. Right or two okay. hundred, two hundred, two hundred fifty, and I feel the cost at that point would probably it wouldn't be worthwhile dropping the real experience. So if you if your argument would be, would you use a VR helmet additionally in preparation for the real yeah. lessons?
0: A- I feel like yeah, I feel like it would be more of an additional. Because obviously I'm guessing for a pilot's license you have to have a certain number of hours in the air yeah, and yeah, like, sure. there's requirements yeah. around that. I'm just thinking more like, okay, you know, like I've I've got a spare hour at home, so I'll go quote unquote fly virtually for an hour and, and like basically train muscle memory for where all the buttons yeah, but are and the switches are and that sort of stuff. Yeah, that is
1: a no-brainer basically, and people are doing that. And I've done that myself, yeah. right? You, you set up, okay. You set up like XCOM or uh, not XCOM, um, XPlane, or <laughs>
0: I was going to say wrong game, uh, XPlane or, um,
1: <laughs> or flight simulator or something like that on your PC, respective Mac, and you set yourself up with the air, ideally with the airfield you're flying from.
0: But wouldn't you? So the the interesting thing that I think is interesting, like, so flight simulator that's on a PC, but like if you're doing it in a VR and say you have like the hand controllers, especially that, you you are really doing much more muscle memory for like where is this on the dash, where is the thing I should be looking at, which buttons should I be pressing at this point in time, how should I pull on like the stick and the rudder, like.
1: Yeah, when I when I'm I'm, I mean, I don't have a semi-professional flight simulator cockpit, but I have actually a joystick that has a throttle and that has mm-hmm. basically you know like rotating movement and normal joystick movement basically. So I can okay. simulate a flying stick quite well. What I can't simulate is the rudder pedals nicely with that.
0: Mm, You'd still need pedals.
1: Yeah. But you know to do to do that kind of like maybe just getting a feeling for the take takeoff speeds or for you know where you want to be in a circuit pattern at a certain amount of time after takeoff that those kind of things mm. that is what i found flight simulator useful for i know also a bunch sure. of people that use it for instrument training um mm. where you basically say like you know you you actually fly following your gps or your radar beacons and that, those kind of um those kind of navigation aids and you simulate the procedures in-flight simulator, not really that you're, you know, properly flying it because it's still, you know, quite far away from the real experience, but at least you go through the process of, you know, now I'm changing this dial to this setting and now I need to fly, you know, in this direction, yada, yada, yada. So people use it for that. And I'm I'm probably saying like, if you had a good VR setup for that, that would make that experience better. Would it necessarily be worthwhile doing that from a cost-saving point of view for, like, a private pilot's license? I'm not sure. Because, I mean, even if you, let's say, through good preparation, you were able to drop your minimum or drop the hours you need until you get your license from, like, I don't know, average 70 down to 65... Well, you save five hours, it's a grand. Sure, that's a good amount of money, but we're not talking about cost-saving big time, right? However, if you, let's say, you're self-funding your professional pilot's license, like a commercial license or the ATPL, the Airline Transport Mm. Pilot's License, where like an hour in a 737 or in in a small jet or whatever, you know, costs a few thousand dollars, that's a very different thing, right? If you can even shave off half an hour of your necessary flight time for training, that could become a really big cost saver.
0: Hmm. Yeah. No, I'm just sort of, sort of seeing what like the audience is and how big it is. Um. I mean, in, in, in my day-to-day, I do tend to see a lot of companies that are just like, hey, we're a content company for VR. Use our platform to build your content. And there are a million of them that are, I think they're just gonna fall over and die in the next two years. I think it's gonna be a bit of a mm-hmm. bit of a bloodbath. Um because the I don't I don't know if the industry's there to support that many of them. Some of them might survive, but we'll see how they go.
1: Uh, I keep in mind that's quite it's still quite new, right? I mean there are a bunch of providers yeah, but for but- out there.
0: But that's the thing, right? It's still so new, and there's so many companies out there that are just like, "We're doing VR. That's what we do." And I'm like, "Where's the money coming from? Like, wh- like, where's the income? Like, where is this income?" Um, well, I mean, currently I that's obviously it's a gamble. From it's like, a gamble.
1: You know, VC funding and saying. investors. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, and it's totally a gamble on being first and like you know getting in there and being the one. But I just, for me personally, it's, that's just too much, too big a risk. Like you, it's just one in a million. I don't, yeah. I'm not a, I'm not a fan. But good luck to anyone doing it. Let me put it that way.
1: <laughs> Speaking of like um, VR and Google, how we you know Google, um, how we got into that? What's the story with finally some Google Watches coming out? Is there anything you can publicly talk about?
0: <laughs> I don't know anything. You asked me about all this hardware stuff I know nothing about. Yeah, but that's I'm like, interesting I'm like, oh, let me Google. Let me have a look. Uh, Android watches. Do no, <laughs> so I actually need a new one. I don't know. I have no idea. I I'm um, I actually I, I want a new one. Um, yeah, me too. I uh, had a Moto 360. I had, a, I had an original Moto 360 and it just started dying. It just, just started falling over. Um, yeah, see,
1: my problem is that... A good Android smartwatch is the last pu- piece in the puzzle that stops me from moving from my iPhone, I- Apple Watch setup to Android fully.
0: So apparently the mo- the second generation Moto 360, like I had the first one, is still really good from everyone that's telling me that um, and all the reviews I've seen online. that's That was the one I've wanted for a while. I still don't have it. Um, I should probably just go buy one, actually. But that being said, I.O. is coming up soon, and who knows what's going to happen I.O. You know, we could have new watches. We could have new chat clients.
1: Anything's possible. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Yeah, there's that rumor that basically Google is coming out with Pixel watches, and a lot of people oh, think that's cool. a lot of people think that might happen together with android wear 2.0 which is i think coming out in mid or late february or something like that so the anticipation is really high i think mark
0: i i genuinely don't know if i did i couldn't say anything anyway um it's actually the first i've heard of that which is not unsurprising my head's been in the sand for a while cuz i've just been crazy busy but um yeah that i think i think i'm definitely i'm going to hang out for I.O like that's that's no sway over anything else but I'm going to go for a while if I'm going to get a watch because that is the likeliest place we would announce that sort of yeah, thing yeah
1: that's what i would think too
0: yeah um but no I, I miss having i miss having a watch it's it's actually very it's frustrating still useful phone, eh? it's so useful it's like in my pocket all the time
1: <laughs> i still i have the apple watch since september since the sec- second generation came out basically and yeah. i can't really imagine not having a smartwatch and I'm not even using it heavily, you know that I'm using 20 different apps on it, but just for notifications and fitness tracking and mm. um, you know run keeper and a few little things make it so useful
0: no I agree I agree a hundred percent I't for me, not fitness tracking because I do combat sports, but um, you know, it doesn't it doesn't really work at all, but um yeah, just notifications, mm. and like I'll talk into it, and just be like, "Hey, set me an alarm," and yeah. and that kind of thing. Now it's it's super, 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 super handy. Yeah,
1: I agree.
0: I was thinking of something. What were we talking about? Okay. I was thinking about something. I was going to say.
1: I O smartwatches, Motorola, uh, virtual reality. Oh, I know what okay. it was.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it was. Um, I had a I had a very googly moment, which I thought I think you would probably appreciate. Um, like that was the moment that, that I was like, yeah, I totally work at Google was, uh, yeah. So I said, I, I dislocated my shoulder before Christmas and, uh, thankfully we, we have in-house physical therapists, which is amazing and awesome. But, um, so I started going to him this year to get my shoulder back in a state where I can actually hit things again. And, uh, I was, I laughed the other day because, I'd gone back for the was it the second week? I mean, we were going through the exercises that you know I was progressing onto, which is really cool. And I was like, I was just mentally kind of going through them out loud in my head so I could remember them all. And he goes, "Listen, let's do this. Start a spreadsheet." <laughs> And <laughs> we'll list out all the exercises. And I was like, I was like, "Do you have it?" Like, and he's like, "And then share that that Google spreadsheet with me. Like, share the document with me, like Google Docs and stuff." And I was like, "Wait, do you have a template that you use that for other customers that you you found works really well?" And he's like, "Wait a minute, let me pull one up." And so he pulls up the template, puts in the initial sort of stuff, shares it with me over Google Docs. And I'm like, "Yeah, this totally, this totally is. We, I work at Google now. Like, like even down it comes down to my bung shoulder. I'm still creating Google <laughs> spreadsheets. It's <laughs> funny." which I thought was absolutely hilarious. And then today I was like, I'm going to map out sort of the combat sports activities that I could do, say, in sequence of risk and then put in a, a status next to each of them so that I can know whether I'm approved or di- like not allowed to do this yet so I can see progress. And then I'm like writing comments on Google Docs back to my physical therapist being like, hey, if you're interested, this is the sort of stuff that I want to be able to do soon.
1: <laughs> but yeah, I thought that was yeah, pretty funny. Yeah, it is actually. That's an interesting idea. And you call that a googly moment. That's the official word for-
0: It was a good, well, so we do so much stuff with Google docs and talking amongst team members on comments in Google docs. So like, like I probably have like four or five different docs shared with me per day, you know, mm. like uh, various types and for like review and like planning and whatnot. So, yeah, that, it felt it felt very much like, yeah, that, that's a googly moment when your physical therapist is like, I'm going to share a doc with you. It's going to have your exercises in it, just, you know, <laughs> so you can remember what it is that you need to do. Oh, cool. I
1: found that. I found that very amusing. So what else is new, Mark?
0: What else is new? So I did a podcast yesterday. You might find this actually quite interesting. Um, I, I threw out something I've been thinking about a lot um, which is, uh, I, I get I really get into communities and, like, cultures between communities especially. So obviously I've been doing a lot of game stuff, but I have more of a web DevOps background. And I may have ranted on here about this a little before, and it's kind of interesting. The differences between um, web and DevOps communities versus gaming communities and sort of the, the culturalness of them, I, I, I find, like, say, for example, there's much more prevalence for open source and like, the web DevOps side than there is in gaming. There is some in gaming, but I think it's much more understood and, and, and sort of, much more of a foundation mm-hmm. on the on okay. the web dev side. Um, so I kind of just threw out on Twitter, I was just like, hey, like I'm thinking about this thing and I'd love to come on a podcast and talk about it because I'm just super curious about why this is and like what's the reasons and how did that end up happening. And then there was one uh there's this uh Crystal Leon is this guy who does a bunch of um, online tutorials and and game teaching and stuff and here's a here's a little podcast. Um and so I was like, hey, and it's it's Gam Keto or Gam Keto, G A M K E D O. And I was just kinda like, Hey Gam Keto, uh, I saw you did a podcast, would you be interested? And then I quickly get this message of, uh, so what are you doing tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> so the next day I was like, all right, sitting in my wardrobe recording a podcast talking about um it was a lot about like sort of community and open source and knowledge sharing, um, and just the different ways we do it between computer it, between those communities. Um, I find that I find that the web devop side, and say the gaming side, um, but then the gaming side also tends to mingle game designers and programmers in a single space, whereas we don't really do that on the web op side. Like a programming mm-hmm. conference is a programming conference you know a ux conference is a ux conference you don't put those two people together in the same conference more often than not because the content doesn't match up um so it's kind of there's there's a yeah there there's some really interesting cultural things in there um and and the, i also find in in game conferences they have a real fear of product pitch like there's a culture of if you come from a company and you want to talk about a thing then you okay. have to pay for it to be there whereas that's 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 much less so in the web dev. Like Neither one wants the sales pitch. Like No one really wants that. But like if I showed up and I was like, let me show you how to build a thing on App Engine um, so you can scale to like Ridiculouses, like, I could get that into a conference because they'd be like, oh, you're, you're showing me how to build a thing, and then I can choose whether or not to use it. Fine. Um, whereas, yeah, if I tried to do that at a game company, the game conference, unless mm, it was a okay. smaller conference, they would just go no. Like, it would just be a no. There'd be a whole lot of no. But they'd be like, if you want to pay for it and come talk, more than happy no problem talk about whatever you like oh. it's just different and I'm, i we were talking about why and it was it was quite interesting
1: that is interesting and I mean even in programming or in the the core development community there are very subtle or mm. sometimes not that subtle differences between you know different technology communities or you yep. know between like Absolutely. the enterprise world and the normal web development community yes. and those kind of things I mean like Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just what it is, basically.
0: Yeah, then it's super. It got me like super interesting. I, I I wondered if because like web and DevOps, right? We're we're inherently tied to the internet, right? So internet culture, I think, permeates so much of software development because they're so much instricably tied together. And I feel like so much of the internet was this idea of freedom, of democratization, mm. of, you know, anyone can create anything. And so when it came to software, that was imbued with a lot of that. You know, like, you write software and you open source it so people can learn and you can build it. Like, it's, I, I basically, the, and I made the comment on the podcast and I kind of found it kind of interesting. I found, like, like the the web and DevOps kind of feels more more socialist. Yep. In, its, in its perspective, right? It's about building a strong foundation that everyone can stand on and because everyone has a strong foundation, therefore we all rise. Like, you know, the, the, the rising tide raises all boats and foundation for the house, pick your metaphor, whatever. Whereas the game development community definitely feels more capitalist where it's like, it's about me, I'm going to make my money. Um, you know, I might not sell it at an exorbitant rate, but like I need to get my thing back. Um, I'm not about building the foundation. I'm about building what I have. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the same token, the game development community does share a lot of knowledge. They do a lot of tutorials. They do like a lot, they have like video tutorials. Like that is like their thing. They they do that so well, better than anything I've ever seen. Um, but but when it comes to like code, for example, or or having a thing that you you know you might share with other people, um, that feels more capitalist. So yeah, anyway, and and like, as I said in that podcast too, like I could be totally wrong about this stuff. I'm just like super curious as to how those cultures came to be and why that is and why that stays as a status quo or does it change and that sort of stuff really fascinates me. I would
1: think that changes, right? Like, I mean, when you look at enterprise technologies, like, I don't know, like stuff like Oracle or SAP or whatever other, you know, big platforms you can think of, they... Are traditionally mm. more locked away than, for example, you know, a GPL open source community. And, but that is changing in a way that those enterprise communities and enterprise technologies started to leverage open source technology a few years ago. I mean, oh, that's you know, that's how it started. By a hu- yeah, by, a by lot. A, now, by gonna... a lot. But that started, yeah. you know. Quite small, probably a few years ago or a bunch of years ago, but now what I see, what I see, yeah,
0: I mean the amount of yeah the amount of enterprise companies I know that run yeah. Mesos and Kubernetes and like stuff like that, like huge. Yeah, but what you cluster. now
1: see is that some of those corporates uh, or enterprises actually feed back some of their developments into a community or into communities the leverage, right? And that's yep. something you see more and more. Not enough, I would argue, but it is definitely on an upward trend from my point of view. So... In-
0: mm. No, I agree in it. I wonder if that's a continuum. Like, you, you think that game development will head in that direction? I may or may not. Um, although you could say the step of Unreal open sourcing its stuff, uh, its engine and doing development in the open, was mm-hmm. a step in that direction. For sure.
1: Oh, interesting. Um, yeah.
0: but But, like... But it is interesting too, like so like then this is the fun thing, right? So Unity open sources all its networking stuff. But like they don't release any of the tests. So it's like as like and they don't really quite like they accept pull requests, but they're like, you won't see it get pulled in, we'll do it internally. So I feel like They've they've open sourced it to the degree that you can look mm-hmm. at the code and see what it's doing, but they haven't open sourced it to the degree in the way that probably you and I think of open source, which is like there's a community here, and maintainers, and like people are interested in contributing and making things better. Yeah, I know what you um, mean. It doesn't it doesn't feel that way. I don't I don't feel like they've sort of leveraged it, it as much as they kind could. What
1: What is lacking is the element of collaboration between the owner and the community. And yeah. the typical example of that is yeah. Microsoft open source, from my point of view. Or at least Microsoft open source a few years ago, right? When they started doing things like open sourcing their uh, ASP or .NET M- MVC framework, for example. You know, in their mind, mm. open sourcing, that means like putting it somewhere on a Microsoft open source platform. I can't remember, even remember what that was called. And then...
0: It's it's kind of how like Google used to do my open source, right? We used to just be like, "Here's the thing: if you use it, good yeah, for or, you," and that, that was that. That is
1: fair enough. That that might be might be true, but I can you know I yeah clearly remember it from you know .dot NET MVC basically they throw it out there, you can take it and look at the source code. Mm. That's fine, and you have a license for it, you know, which might be whatever one of the the open source licenses but you can't really fix anything in it or contribute to it because they wouldn't take anything back, you know. Or they might take it back and they make an idea from you, but they would not actually mm. collaborate with you. Yeah. That's exactly never that know. kind of that model of open source from my mm. view.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I Google's changed the way it does, has done mm. open source so much in the last several yeah, years. You know, it's, what, it's like night and day. You know what I actually realized happy, the other day?
1: But,
0: yeah but it maybe that is Sorry, the continuum. What I realized the other day
1: um, Facebook is contributing to mercurial big time. Yeah, I think so too actually. I'm that must that be the, the reason. But I was totally not aware of that. I was I was looking at like um solving a problem with like managing a lot of large files in a repository, which is, you know, always an issue anyway. But then I come across mm. that whole set of tools from Facebook for Mercurial managing and scaling Mercurial repositories if you run them yourself and in-house. And I'm like, wow, you know, I didn't know that at all, you know. And then you find that random suite of tools that actually helps you to solve your problem.
0: Yeah, you've you've definitely. Facebook's done some cool stuff in the open source. I mean, obviously Mm -hmm. React is a big big thing from them. Um, It is it is good to see. Microsoft has just done like a one eighty in terms of what it does now with terms of open source and like the innovation it's doing. It's it is very funny how Microsoft has kind of come around to being a cool company again. I find that absolutely fascinating. Um, Like even just like how many people do do you use VS Code. I know so many people who use VS Code now. Uh, I'm not one of them because I'm just a huge IntelliJ user. But uh, I know people that swear by it and love it. Uh, the open sourcing of C Sharp. I'm running like the the hilarious thing the other day. I was like, oh, I'm going to do some I'm going to do some C Sharp learning. So I'm like, I'm going to run C Sharp inside a Docker container. Like I wasn't even running Mono. I was running like like the .NET framework, and I'm like. That's like what world is this? Like what world is this where I'm like I'm going to do some C sharp? So I'm going to pull a Docker container down with net in it that's running on a Linux machine, and I'm like, that's what cool. the hell is going yeah. on? Um, yeah, but yeah. Microsoft is doing cool. things. I think things, like you know when they it is like it was like super cool
1: mono or basically and properly open source that whole of platform that started to make a big difference for people.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so yeah programming is kind of It interesting.
1: is very Java like right very, I mean in a lot uh, of ways
0: There's there's a few things like actually it's 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 a decent language it's just um <laughs> I've realized there are other languages that have spoilt me more with other things that I thought were quite quite interesting not oh, yeah. l- least of which is now I have to write semicolons again <laughs> Yeah which is not something I'm used to anymore I haven't written semicolons in a programming language in actually a really long time. Mm. Uh, except, oh, no, yeah, uh, the occasional time write I write JavaScript. Java, that's, that's a lie. i there we go.
1: Kotlin quite a lot. And that is so confusing with semicolons. You know, I then I spent like three days writing Kotlin, not have touched the semicolon mm. key at all. All of a sudden, you want to change a Java file and it's like, pff, compiler error. Oh, God.
0: The, what am I doing? yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. C Sharp has the capital letter on public methods, which I got used to from Go, so that was fine. That didn't bother me too much. Um, but yeah, like there, there were little things that I was talking about. I was like, "Where do you put your tests when you write C Sharp code? Do you put them in the same directory? Do you put them in a different directory?" And like I was chatting, and someone I was like, "No, you you totally put it in a different mm-hmm. directory because, like, otherwise your build includes your tests." And I'm like, "Doesn't." Doesn't your compiler just skip those automatically? And they're like, "Why would it do that?" I'm like, "Well, it does it in Go, and it's really handy." <laughs> and I'm like, "Man, I've been spoiled. Like, that's, that's just like a little thing that's like, you just write underscore test and goes like, I'm not going to include that in a build. I never would." Um, and so it's like, I was like, "Oh, okay, that's that's quite handy." And I do, I definitely actually. The funny thing is, I really miss um, interfaces by convention in Go. That is something I really miss when coming back to another language like like Java or C sharp um, because it's it's such a nice way to provide abstractions for code you don't control. And that, so if you if you haven't played with it, um, basically you define an interface and in go. You never actually have to write. You implements anywhere. It's just that if that particular object happens to have the same method signatures that are defined in the interface, then it's considered to have defined that interface. So if you have some third party code like that, you want to be able to mock or something like that. You can basically write an interface that has the methods on that object that you would call inside your code. Use that as your argument type signature. Um, and then if you use the real thing from third party code, it's fine. Or if you pass in a mock with something that, you know, does some different data or you're checking to see whether it was received or not, you can do that without ever having to worry about anything. Whereas like, if you have third-party code, sometimes that can be a real pain to mock if they haven't done it with interfaces and or don't have an implementing interface. You don't have to worry about that and Go. And I, I, it's actually coming back to something like C Sharp where you have to specifically declare interface interactions. It's like, oh, God, this sucks. So it looks like we lost We lost it. Your internet dropped out there?
1: Yeah, that's actually really ironic, right? Because um, a few months ago, I started to work from a co-working space a few days a week. And um, that co-working space has, like, really fast and good fiber internet. So I've got a really awesome connection here normally. And then, yeah, I decided I'll do the podcast from here because of this awesome connection. Mm-hmm. And what happens? Internet yeah. dies. Great. Exactly. And now I'm back on my phone, oh. tethered to my Mac on 4G, basically.
0: See, so you're going to make me editing this way more fun. But that's all right. It should be easy enough. Um, so... We're finishing up. I think we're, we're both running out of time. I'm getting super sleepy. Uh, you said you're going to be in Japan soon, I think. any Anywhere else? Any other fun things you're doing?
1: No, I'm not going anywhere from a trip point of view. I'm going to Aussie soon for a bit to see my client, and then at some point i will go to mm-hmm. Japan. Um, I'll be doing, for the people who are in New Zealand or in Wellington, I'm going to do an introduction into Kotlin for Android, for the local yes. Google developer group in February. That's going to be mm-hmm. like roughly a 90-minute, two-hour thing, just just like a, a hands-on coding thing, build like a first Android app in Kotlin and learn some of the language along the way. So if you're in New Zealand or if you're in Wellington, feel free to hit me up on Twitter to learn more about that. And we might actually record that. That is a bit depending on the recording facilities at the venue, but a bunch of people have expressed interest in in a recording of a session like that.
0: Okay, cool. Sounds like it'll be fun.
1: Yeah, those, that think, should hopefully uh, be reasonably entertaining and you know, get a few more people into Kotlin.
0: That sounds good. Uh, what am I up to? Um, yes, yeah, so we just finished Global Game Jam. That's cool. Now I'm just preparing for Game Developers Conference. Um going to be everywhere all over <laughs> that. We're uh, sponsoring Women in Games. Uh, we're sponsoring Black in Games. We may or may not have a booth. We will have a developer day on the Tuesday, I want to say. as uh, a Google developer day. I'll be doing a landing talk. And then I'll be doing uh, one half of a sponsored session, a uh, sponsored talk talking about dedicated game servers in games um, at the beginning of that talk, which will be Wednesday morning. And then uh, the program, the pro- the product manager for games, uh, Daniel Gresham, will be talking about big data in games uh, after that. And okay. then the week after that, we have Cloud Next. <laughs> I'll be on stage with one of our partners, Improbable. Which is basically MMO as a service. Uh, so we'll be talking about their service, how it works, and how they built the thing, which is actually super, super cool too.
1: Okay, interesting. Speaking and of, um, after that, I have, have no idea. You, speaking of, um, you know, interesting things to come across recently, I recently I <laughs> noticed that Hour is back. You know, for the people who, for the CFML fans <laughs> among our listeners. So Uh it seems uh that Hour has recorded an episode, probably inspired by us having recorded an episode in December. Sure, of course. Sure. (laughs) So yeah, there's like an episode out there mainly talking about um, CF objective, the ex Dev objective, Uh, the ex-CF objective.
0: (laughs) So who's like... I was going to say, oh, David Scott is still doing it, and it's Emma Tuttle and Carol in. Okay, so people, people yes. we both
1: know. Yeah. So good. it was interesting. Yeah. I listened to it. Um, the I think you know, with their venue move, they're probably changing, or they're moving a bit closer to a lot of their audience, which is good, I think.
0: And well, you know, from my point of view. Up,
1: eh? Yeah, and from my point of view, Adam has expressed a few good ideas to make the conference, or to to put some more life into the conference again after last year was a bit disappointing, apparently. So, you know, I'm keen to see how that pans out. I
0: was there. I wasn't disappointing.
1: Yeah, let's just leave it with that, Mark. (laughs) 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 Whatever you think is right.
0: It's true. I said I I wasn't disappointing. I can't speak for anything else.
1: That's fine. Yeah. But, you know, I'm just saying what the uh, impression apparently was by a few people so yeah we'll see how that goes and you know it would be would be nice to you know see that grow again a little bit
0: excellent excellent all right I think we're gonna have to round up there yeah sounds good all right well then I guess I will speak to you next month
1: yes in February we'll work out on a day work on a date and then we are monthly for three months in a row Woo
0: Oh, sounds good. All right, my friend, then I will talk to you later.
1: Okay, have a good night, Mark. (laughs) See ya. Cool, (laughs) bye-bye.
0: Have a good day.